Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Hey guys, at the top of the show, usually a couple of listeners who are donor supporters of MaximumFun.org tell you that The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and them. This is the Max Fund Drive, so it's your chance to become one of those people who supports the show. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. We'll have more details later on in the program. But first, enjoy this interview. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. The Kids in the Hall are one of the most beloved sketch comedy groups in the world. From their roots in the rock and roll scene of mid-1980s Toronto, through their television program in both Canada and the United States, to today, they've been known for some of the weirdest, most bizarre, compelling, hilarious comedy that anyone in the world has to offer. One of the most singular of their singular members is my guest today, Scott Thompson. The kids were known for their weird, strange comedy. But one of Scott's most famous characters was Danny Husk, a man whose only weirdness was how banal he was. In this clip from the Kids in the Hall TV show, Danny Husk is sent by his boss on a woodland retreat to find his inner warrior. The retreat leader is played by fellow kid in the hall, Kevin McDonald. Dan? Uh-huh. What's happened to you, man? What do you mean, sir? You've, you've lost your business edge, Dan. I'll submit my resignation today, sir. No, 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 Dan. I, I don't want you to resign. I want you to go on one of them weekends. Oh, you mean one of those things where you run around the woods with a bunch of guys with your shirts off? Exactly, Dan. Okie doke. That's the spirit. Dan. I'll get right on. Well, I don't really uh, uh, <clears throat> know what to say. Show me your soul, Wolf. Dig deep and find the pain of your past. Oh, you mean like a juicy anecdote? Okay, here goes. Uh, I don't recall much of my past, uh, but uh, I do recall my neighbors. They were Spaniards. They grew fine tomatoes. You hide your pain. Now show me your essence. So it's pretty interesting that Scott chose Danny Husk to build a graphic novel around, and not just any graphic novel, but a fantasy graphic novel called The Hollow Planet. That book is in stores now, and Scott Thompson is with me today. Welcome to The Sound of Young America, Scott. Thank you very much. Thank you. I was reading about your um, early life, and I have to say that... Can um, I deny it now? (laughs) I... The impression that I got, and it wasn't based on a lot of data points, but some data points, was that, uh, like, post-adolescent Scott Thompson uh, was just wildly out of control in every way. Yes. That would be a good good, uh, guess. Yes, that is true. Yeah, wildly out of control. <laughs> were you like were you like a social kid? Um uh were you a jock or were you I was a social kid. Yeah, I, I was one of those kids that got along with everyone. 
Like I, I could basically go from every group, from the stoners to the to the prefects to the, you know, not what is rich a kids. prefect? What do you call that? I don't know. I don't know prefects what that's are called. Like the, that's a the, kid, that's Canadian the high browners. school slang. The Browners? <laughs> oh, you might you could just you are just saying words that have so little meaning the to me. You, well, you, you know, might the as well just be saying, you know, bamboo kids. The pops? Um, the bamboo kids. You know, the bamboo kids. That's what sure. you Yes. Um, you know, slow cookers. Slow cookers, yes. The crock pots? Uh-huh. You call them crock pots. Right, we here. call them crock pots. So the I was States. a crock pot. I could go from the crock pots to the slow cookers. So I, I had to, I was very social and I got along with everyone because I, I think that might be a very uh, uh, classic trait of like gay kids, particularly back then. Now, maybe not so much. They're more accepted. They don't have to develop those kinds of skills the same way that we did. What changed when you uh, when you left and went away to school and eventually were expelled from the theater program of your college for like, being disrupted? I could finally say what I I could finally be who I was. I wanted to be a dancer growing up, and there was no way on earth that could ever have happened. Uh, I'd been accepted at journalism school at Carleton in Ottawa, but I'd secretly applied to York University for theater. And I also got accepted there. And my parents didn't know that. And they thought I was going to be a journalist. And I said, no, I'm going to go to theater school. And they hit the roof. So, I mean, I might as well have said that I was sleeping with a, a big black man that came later. <laughs> and um, so, <laughs> so they, uh, and then I went crazy. I just – it was the moment I went to theater school and they gave me my tights. I looked so good in <laughs> tights and I went, this is the look that I've been meaning to rock my whole life. And uh, you, that was it. You were like – you when you say you went crazy, I mean you were too much for theater school. I was which thrown takes, out of school, yeah. Which takes some doing, I it think. It does. And like out of theater school, yeah, I know. I mean I had good – the funny thing is I had pretty good academic marks. What kind of stuff – what kind of acting out did you get involved in that led you well, to get – all my improvs turned violent. Oh, That's geez. a lot of it. Everything would end up with me – fighting someone that's like the one thing you're not allowed to do like i I watched um my friend showed me um rupaul's drag uh what's that drag race drag race last night and i uh one of the queens (laughs) picked up another queen and threw him to the ground like a like a mexican wrestler and he was (laughs) thrown out like and i just thought that's the kind of drag queen i would have turned out to be (laughs) I was, yeah, I was a little, yeah. Um, so, and I would do, I was very um, insubordinate to the teachers and I was very mouthy. And uh, I, I, I didn't realize that it was possible that I could be a comedian. And I think that I, I didn't understand that that was an option. Because I thought comedians talk about their life. I can't talk about my life. Therefore, I must be an actor and act other people's lives. When did you start doing comedy? I started doing comedy in my final third year of university i went to the Banff school of fine arts for musical theater and while i was there i for a summer program i did one night of stand-up comedy which was a disaster and then after university i i spent a couple of years trying to make it as a legitimate actor this is a straight theater you know an actor and then it was about my second year out of university i went to a midnight show um, at a place called The Poor Alex with my friend Darlene. And she said, there's this comedy troupe there that you have to see. And I was like, oh, okay. 
and I went. It was the kids in the hall, and it was the old kids in the hall when they were – there was t- uh, like eight of them, and they were a group from Calgary and a group from Toronto, and they'd come together, and there were eight of them. And um, it was like love at first sight. I, I saw them, and like a voice in my head said – you're going to be in that group. This was uh, a, a time when, at least in the United States, I don't know the Canadian comedy scene that well, when club comedy was just absolutely exploding. Yes. Uh, with, you know, the, the you know, Paula Poundstones of the world. Yeah. Uh, doing, doing huge uh, theater gigs yeah. and, you know, you're... I don't know who's who else is a good example. Your Richard Jennies, yeah, just these these the huge stand up comedy big. boom. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember Sam Kinison. I remember the people like that. Yeah, that people loved at. Sam yeah. Kinison. And I remember um, I, I remember once talking with your uh, kids in the hall castmate Dave Foley about mm-hmm. the kids in the hall in the early days of the kids in the hall. Right. And he seemed very proud that the kids in the hall were as much a part of the kind of alternative rock scene yes um and the punk scene as they were part of any kind of comedy world yeah that's uh, that is kind of true actually um we were because i mean sketch comedy maybe maybe stand-up at the time was having a moment but sketch comedy was pretty stale pretty uh, frozen it was second city basically and nothing else and and then we came along we started performing in a a rock club and we were in a venue that had never that wasn't really known for sketch comedy at all and we were the only people that did it and everybody in that did sketch comedy then there weren't many people everybody was trying to get into second city that was basically what everyone wanted to do and we were the anti-second city i mean everything that they did we did the opposite. We really were about destroying everything. Um, we were young. We were very young. And um, we wanted to br- bring it down, man. The Sound of Young America and MaximumFun.org are proud sponsors of the third annual Women in Comedy Festival in Boston, Massachusetts, March 9th through 13th. The third annual festival features Kristen Shaw performing in her hilarious sketch comedy duo with Kurt Brownholler. It also features close friend of MaximumFun.org, Jen Kirkman, past guest on both Jordan Jesse Go and The Sound of Young America, and the very funny Morgan Murphy. Shows take place all over Boston, and the goal is to create a place for people to experience the comedic expression of women, see strong female performers, and above all, be entertained. They book some really great comics. For more information on the festival and how to get tickets, you can visit womenincomedyfestival.com. That's www.womenincomedyfestival.com. It's the Max Fun Drive. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm Teresa Thorne. Thank you for joining me once again, Teresa, Development Director of MaximumFun.org. I'm glad to be here. Um, anyway, it's the Max Fun Drive. Uh, what that means is it's the time of year when we reach out to you, the listeners of all of our MaximumFun.org uh, shows, to ask for your support. There are, as of this recording, more than a thousand Maximum Fun listeners who support our shows every month with. Uh, Anything from $2 to $200. And it's that money that is the lifeblood of this organization. It's what allows uh, me and Teresa to work here full time. It's what pays Julia, the Sound of Young America producers, 
salary. Um, Nick White, our editor, gets paid this way. All of the other podcasters who contribute to this, Jordan and Stop Podcasting Yourself and My Brother, My Brother and Me, it all comes from people who decided to uh, support the thing that they love. Um, And frankly, I don't think this is something that only people who are like rich and drive Jaguars can do. Um, I think that supporting media that you care about is something that anyone at any income level can do. And that's very important to us here at MaximumFun.org. It's why we have a broad variety of giving levels. That's right. We have giving levels everywhere from $2 to $200 a month. Um, and we actually have a lot of great pledge gifts at all different levels. And what we're asking right now is just for listeners to think about during the pledge drive, you know, what does the sound of young America and maximumfund.org mean to me? Um, you know, why do I listen? Why do I enjoy it? Um, we give it away for free and a really nice way to show that you care about the show and show that, you know, it matters to you is to support the show. And, you know, we're not asking if you're not super rich, we're not asking you to go crazy and, you know, pay a bunch of money that you can't afford. But that's why we have (laughs) if you are super rich, by all means, go crazy. I don't want to alienate any super rich people out there who are listening right now. But I know that our, our audience has people of all different income levels, such a broad range of people. What's really important to us is we give out this show for free, and we know that it means something to you, and if it does mean something to you, we'd like you to support it. And what's great about supporting it, this is something that I hear all the time, is that when you are the person who supports the show, every time that you listen, instead of feeling that little pang of guilt when those people at the beginning of the show say, um, uh, this show is supported by listeners like you and me, uh, you feel a little pang of pride which is the opposite of guilt, I think. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think... (laughs) Look, I wasn't a word major in college. (laughs) I think when when you're a donor and you listen, um, you can take pride in knowing that we're literally here because of you. I mean, we literally just would not be able to do this if it weren't for our wonderful, wonderful donors who subscribe at all different levels, but who consistently describe the, subscribe. They're with us every single month, and they consistently give, and they consistently support what we do, and we just would not be here if it weren't for them. You know, I, I give out my email address on every show, and um, I, I often get these, email, these emails that are, like, addressed to someone else besides me, like, Dear Jesse's Assistant or something. <laughs> and uh, I, it's only me, I, pr- I promise. And... What people talk about in the emails is what the Sound of Young America means to them. And, um, you know, I don't do the Sound of Young America just for my own entertainment. I I do it because I get those emails and I know how it affects people's lives. And it's, you know, I mean, we're here working 60 hours a week um, because we love what we do. Uh, But every time I get one of those emails that says... um, you know, that says every favorite thing that I have, I discovered through the sound of young America or, um, you know, Ian Mackay changed my life when I was 15 years old. And it was really amazing to hear him on the sound of young America, or, uh, I've never heard somebody talk to a rapper with that much intelligence and respect. And then I heard it on the sound of young America, or, I didn't know that there was other people out there that cared as much about comedy as I do until I heard the sound of young America. 
And um, I'm really proud of that. And what it means to me is that um, this is a show that is actually, you know, actually affecting people's lives, which is kind of amazing for me as the guy who just started this as his college radio show (laughs) and then never quit because then he figured if he did quit, he'd have to figure out something else to do. (laughs) That was too terrifying. Um, But I think you take a second to think about what this show means to you because you went in and subscribed to it. So you must like it. What do you like about it? What, What impact does it have on your life? Um, do you think that might be worth 10 bucks a month or 20 bucks a month? Now, let me ask you this. What if we throw in a special treat that we mail you in the mail if you give us 5 for 10 or $20 a month? Anyway, we'll be back a little bit later on uh, to talk about uh, all the cool thank you gifts that we have and so forth. And what we're, what we're really asking you to do is go to MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. And you can check out all the different thank you gifts that we have on there. You can check out all the different levels that you can subscribe at. Um, think about what you want to subscribe at. Think about what is a comfortable level for you. Um, and take a look at those gifts and see what appeals to you. Um, you'll be given a choice of membership levels, and you just provide your credit card and some other basic information and that's it you're a member you won't have to think about it again it just gets debited from your account once a month and if you want to cancel at any time you just cancel Uh, it's really easy so go to maximumfund.org and click on donate it's the sound of young america i'm jesse thorne my guest is scott thompson a member of the canadian sketch comedy group the kids in the hall In this scene from their early 90s television program, Scott plays a loopy version of the Queen of England. It's a fact. The Queen of England doesn't know her ABCs anymore. A, B, C, D, X, P, Q, R, X, Y, D. Hello. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the kids in the hall. You you had this uh, regular stage show mm-hmm. in uh, Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that regular stage show turn into something that became a television series? Well, you know, the one of the things that was we were very lucky that we weren't discovered right away. So we were we had years to develop, and we would do a show every two weeks, all new material. And we just kept doing it. I mean, all every two weeks, we'd write a whole brand new show. We did this for quite a while. And then one day, um, I'm not exactly sure um, who exactly. It might have been Martin Short. Um, it might have been um, Catherine O'Hara. It might have been um, Dave Thomas. One it was of, a legend of comedy. Yeah, it was one of the – it was a legend of comedy that saw us and told some. It might have been Bill Cosby. It might have been Bill Cosby. No, it has to be Could have been Mark Twain. It could have been Mark Twain. It's definitely Mark Twain. Oh, I wish it had been. And then um, we um, we got discovered and then the, the SCTV people started talking about us. And then it got back to Dave Thomas. Um, who was married to Pamela Thomas, and she was an agent at the time, and her partner was Diane Pauly, who's Sarah Pauly's mother. And um, so they came and saw us, and they signed, they made, they signed us as, as managers. And then we, uh, Pam and Diane, and then we did this show um, um, at the 
Factory Theatre Lab in Toronto. And it was the first time we started, we wrote everything down. And then we actually rehearsed it. And we, <laughs> we got a band. We got the Shadowy Men to do this run. We did a run, like a couple of weeks run. And it was a big deal. Like, every, we sold out. Everybody in Toronto came. And, and then... I think it went from Dave Thomas. It, it kind of went. It's like the Canadian Telephone. Dave Thomas to Dan Aykroyd to I think um, Lauren Michaels. Lauren Michaels was coming back to Saturday Night Live after um, going away for a few years, and he was scouting. So he came to Toronto to scout, and he heard about us. And then they asked us if we would do a showcase for them. So we did a showcase at the Rivley, which was the club that we always performed at. And it was a big deal. Like everybody in comedy came to that show. Like it was lined up around the block and people were lined up all day for it. And we did a very, very wild, very undisciplined, crazy, kind of like like self-destructive show. Like we did half of it was new material. We did all this new material. We, we had no idea. But it, it was a really wild night and um and that was it and then lauren said i really want to help you guys get a tv show and it all came from that night i want to talk a little bit about um some of your characters sure the kids in the hall i think probably the one that you're most identified with is uh buddy who is a um a, a sort of uh loose super femi lounge lizard um and at the time, there just weren't a lot of no. portrayals of uh, gay guys who were gay no. um, where that was part of what they were. No, none. Not very rare. Very rare. Um, was it – were you, like, self-aware about that? Like, did that, like, make you feel weird about the whole thing? Yes. I, I was very aware that I was um, out there almost alone. Um and I knew that I was, um, f- you know, breaking new ground, which can be very exciting, but also can be very painful. Um, I-, I was shocked at-, at the negativity that I got from people, particularly gay men. I mean, I got an awful lot of grief from gay men during that time. Let's let's hear a little bit of uh, my guest, Scott Thompson, uh, doing Buddy on uh, The Kids in the Hall. They say... <laughs> That the notion of love at first sight is an impossible idea. Now, I may have been born yesterday, but I still went shopping. It happens. Well, it happened to me. Oh, it was years ago when I was living in Baghdad. The day in question, it was a sexy, sunny, rocky day. <laughs> and I was lounging about the pool at the Danish consulate, wearing next to nothing. <laughs> oh. In fact, at one point, all I was wearing was a diplomat's hand. I mean, I, I think there's an argument that can be made and certainly was made at the time that it plays into this uh, sort of broad gay stereotype right. of what a kind of uh, femi slash queenie gay guy is like. Right. But on the other hand, 
Uh, it's, it's true. I mean, I grew up in San Francisco. I knew a lot of pretty queeny gay guys. Yeah, like really. And they were pretty funny, and they, they were aware of their funniness too. Yes. But um, it's you know, it is a usually, cultural group. True, but they're usually the ones that were most upset. It was mostly really queeny guys that would be upset with me. They'd be like, I can't believe that you're always playing gay men like that. I think it's very insulting and stereotypical. I'd be like, why don't you play your voice on a tape recorder and listen to it? Because <laughs> you're ridiculous. And they, people are in denial. And I think, you see, it was such a polarized time. AIDS was ravaging the gay community. So you were, there was no room for humor. No, everything was so deadly serious and earnest. And it was life and death. And I think... I think I was seen by a large proportion of the gay community, particularly the Mandarins, and I love to use that word, who lorded over the movement as um, a sellout or an Uncle Tom or the enemy. And I mean, I, I, I to this day, I still find it's still painful for me um, because for me, I'm like, well, wait a second, what the hell is wrong with being effeminate? Number one, and number two, like lots of gay men are effeminate. Um, it's crazy, and you can't you can't lift your you, no matter how many lift weights you lift, you still carry your books like a girl. Like grow up, get a grip, and and accept it. And I think that people were dying at, in such a it was such a terrible time that Buddy Cole was seen as like as 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 the enemy. But I would go like at least Buddy's not like. He's sexual, like he's not neutered. He was never a neutered gay guy, and he was smart. He's smarter than I am. And, and that queen up until then, I mean, I'm not I'm, – they were always stupid, and you laughed at them. And you never laughed at Buddy. Buddy was always in control. He was an alpha queen. So I, I couldn't understand it. To this day, I think they were dead wrong. One of your uh, characters uh, that you played over and over on the show is also the protagonist of this um, uh, graphic novel yes. that you've just written called Hollow Planet, and that's Danny Husk. Yeah. In a lot of ways, Danny Husk is um, Danny Husk is like the uber straight white heterosexual yes. middle aged middle class. Yes. Like he is like the most absolutely middle character. He is just like banality personified. Yes, yes. And he, you know, he's as much of a, you know, like I'm as much Danny as I am Buddy. And um, I came up with Danny. I guess I remember it very distinctly how it was born. I was with Dave, and I said, "Look, Dave, I'm over here." <laughs> and he said, "Well, I'm over here." Danny, well, I'm going to walk over there. Look, Dave, I'm now over here. And that was it. He was born. And I would just realize, oh, that's it. Because they, they all had their pers- – we all had our business person persona. And the first time I, I, I rocked that persona was in a, a, a scene uh, called The Joymakers where we throw a surprise party for one of our business colleagues who happens to actually be there. And, um, and that's where Danny – it was just my way of – you know, I'm, I was satirizing my brothers and my father and um, basically the, the finding the super straight guy in me. Uh, you wanted to see me, sir? Yeah, Danny, I, I wanted to show you something, Dan. Is it a mole? <laughs> no, no, it's not a mole, Dan. Oh, I thought it might be a mole. No. And maybe you wanted me to see if it had gotten any bigger. 
because I know how hard it is to see certain areas of your body without a mirror. I know what you mean, Dan, but no, 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 it's, it's not a mole. I wanted no. to show you a film, Dan. Oh, Home Alone? No, it's not. It's not Home Alone, although that is a fine film, Dan. Aha. Love the movies. And it's interesting because in, in, in the 20-odd years that I've been doing Danny Husk, that straight white male has gone from, you know, the, the top of the pyramid to the bottom. In many ways, I think straight white males are in many ways today in, in as much danger as the Siberian tiger. And, I, cer- I certainly feel and that And I worry way. for them tremendously. I really do. We appreciate your concern. I, for, I speak on behalf of the straight I, I white male community. I worry for the state community. of masculinity in, in North American culture. I think it's, at, it's, at, it's um, in grave danger. Yeah, sadly, I can't really speak that well for, for masculinity. <laughs> straight white males, yes. Masculinity. Ah! <laughs> and that's many ways what I love about one of the things about Hollow Planet is that, you know, like Danny Husk is what people... I think that the paradigm changed years ago, but people aren't quite there yet. They, they, people still think, oh, the straight white male, he's lording it over us. I'm like, that's such bull. That's not true at all. That's like maybe 25 years ago, but now? No way. The straight white male is more likely to be a straight white female in a power suit than it is an actual straight male or a gay guy. This character started off in this sort of family of kids in the hall characters that were like middle class, upper middle class yeah. people that were so, I mean, his last name is Husk yeah, and th- that were right. so empty that they would essentially yes. like walk into each other. If you didn't grab them by the shoulders and turn them in a different direction. Yes. Yes. And that was um, our businessmen. We played them almost like they were robots. Yeah. I mean, yeah. barely. I mean, but, but with lower than robot level of intelligence. Absolutely. Yeah. Danny is not the swiftest, uh, you know, grape on the vine. It's a, it's very interesting that you, because in the hollow planet, which is, um, I guess Scott Thompson's new graphic novel. Um, this is sort of like, a. it's sort of like a Conan story. Like it's a very yes. classic it fantasy yes. type story that starts with a guy who's, um, just just a put upon yeah. middle aged guy with a mustache. Yeah. Um, so how did you um how did you come to find the heroism rather than the satirizability? That's yeah, right. In it's, that, yeah, twenty years ago, I would have probably written a different story, and I would have it would have been much more mocking Danny. What I found in Dan- why I chose Danny for the protagonist protagonist of my of my first graphic novel is because i looked it was 10 years ago when i started to work on this and i decided because it's going to be three there are three books um this is only the first one I, I i thought to myself i realized that i was in a box that hollywood would never see past my homosexuality that i would always be seen as like oh he's the gay guy hey we got a gay guy we need to have a gay character let's get scott thompson it's embarrassing and boring. And I felt, I, I realized that I was not really being seen as an actor any longer. I was being used as a tool for people to show their liberal credentials. And I thought, do that on your own time. Do you know what I mean? I'm a performer. Hire me for a performer. Don't use me to show that you're cool. You know what I mean? Or that I think gay people are great. It was so boring, the characters that I played. These neutered nanny figures. These, you know. And so... 
I thought, what, what character of mine that is the furthest away that, I, that will get me out of this box? And it was Danny. I thought, well, I'll write a story for Danny because everybody can relate to him. Everybody can feel superior to him. He's an everyman. And you can go, well, I'm not as dumb as Danny or I'm not, you know. And I just thought what I liked about the heroism in Danny is his dogged nature. And I realized that there is something about Danny that's so likable because he just moves forward. Whatever happens, he goes, well, just uh, put your foot forward and uh, keep moving. And he never complains and never whines. And just whatever happens, he accepts it. Including in the book, Becoming a Slave. A slave, yes. He seems, he's like, well, you know, I'm going to make the best of it. (laughs) That's right. Is that a lady or a fellow whipping me? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I'll try and enjoy it. That's it and that's where i thought that's funny and and then i thought okay i i decided i i knew who i was going to write about it's the sound of young america from maximumfun.org and pri public radio international hey gang now that you've thought about how much you like the sound of young america i hope Um, Why don't I tell you about some of the thank you gifts that you can get if you visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate or just type in MaximumFun.org slash Donate and give to support this show. First of all, everyone who donates gets a special digital and physical Max Fun Pack this year. The physical Max Fun Pack is a few stickers from your favorite MaximumFun.org shows and a Max Fun Club membership card that is hand letterpress printed in a beautiful studio in San Francisco that I visited recently by a Max Fun listener. You also get the digital stuff, which is bonus episodes of Jordan Jesse Go and Judge John Hodgman and Stop Podcasting Yourself and My Brother, My Brother and Me, plus short rift comedy films from My Brother, My Brother and Me, uh, Stop Podcasting Yourself and Jordan Jesse Go, and access to the Sound of Young America donor feed, which gives you the Sound of Young America in ultra high quality sound as it appears on the radio or actually better than it appears on the radio. That's for every single person who donates. Now, let me tell you about a few pledge levels. At the $10 a month level, that's the friend of the family level, you get one of our EcoBags brand cotton canvas totes. We've got designs for all the shows. They're really cool. We've spent a lot of time working on these things. Um, And you know what? Hey, let me tell you, they're perfect for all your public radio nerd activities, such as putting a latte in them and putting it in your Volvo to drive to the farmer's market, for example, to buy heirloom tomatoes. If you're interested in being a self-parodic public radio enthusiast, these tote bags are for you. Um, At the $20 a month level, which is the Diamond Friendship Circle, you get not only those EcoBags brand totes, you also get our new USB drive, which Teresa's been working on for quite some time. It is really cool. It's actually made out of wood. Um, I don't know who had the idea to make a USB drive out of wood, but they're really neat. They've got our logo on them and handpicked episodes of uh, us podcasters' favorite shows from our shows. Does that make sense? I think it does. Anyway, they're really cool. So at the Diamond Friendship Circle level, you get the USB drive and the tote bag. And in fact, all of these are cumulative. So as we go up the ladder, you get all the stuff that we haven't mentioned. Maybe the coolest and like most fun level that we have this time around is this amazing idea that Teresa had called Judge John Hodgman's Post-Apocalyptic Justice Squad. Uh, if you give $35 a month, 
you get our Nerd Emergency Kit. Here's what's in it. There's an Eton self-powered AM-FM weather radio with USB. So this thing has a, a solar panel and a hand crank to power it up, and it has a USB plug so you can plug your cell phone into it or uh, whatever else. It's a Nerd Emergency Kit, so probably like your Nintendo DS or something like that. Um, Nintendo 3D, that's something, right? I think they're inventing one of those. Anyway, uh, it's perfect for uh, when there are, you know, packs of wild dogs roaming the land and you have to turn into the radio to find out where and when they are going to be where and when. Um, You also get the USB drive. You get the awesome book Role Models by John Waters, courtesy of FSG Books. Thank you, FSG. After the apocalypse, by the way, the wit and wisdom of John Waters will be used as currency, so you will be a very rich man or woman. You get the credit card survival tool, which is this credit card-shaped piece of stainless steel uh, and credit card-sized piece of stainless steel that has a can opener, a knife edge, a screwdriver, a ruler, a cap opener, a four-position wrench, a butterfly wrench, a saw blade, a direction ancillary indication, whatever that is, maybe an arrow, I don't know, and a lanyard hole, you know, for putting on your lanyard. Uh, You also get a pad of graph paper and a mechanical pencil for taking post-apocalyptic notes. And if a jock happens to step on your eyeglasses, we have included in the Nerd Emergency Kit some white surgical tape. Uh, If you want to play some Dungeons & Dragons, you get a 20-sided die. If you get injured, there are dinosaur band-aids. And of course, if you get hungry or thirsty, there is astronaut ice cream and tang. Um, You also get the tote bag and the Max Fun Pack and the access to all the digital stuff. You can also donate at the Thorn Family Blondie Brigade level, where Teresa and I will bake and send you via FedEx Blondies, yes, personally, ourselves. The Jesse's Golden Eagles level, where you can join us for the Max Fun Dinner the night before Max Fun Con with all the Max Fun celebrities there. And uh, even if you don't come uh, that night, anytime you're in Los Angeles, I personally, I, Jesse Thorne, will take you out to lunch. Or the $200 a month Jordan's Platinum Angels level, our premier level, which includes everything that I've just listed, plus a free ticket to Max FunCon 2012. All of these available to you if you support our show at MaximumFun.org slash donate. Do not delay. Do not pussyfoot around. Do not flim flam. That doesn't make any sense. I'm going to go back to do not delay. Just go to MaximumFun.org slash donate right now. Okay, let's get back to the show. It's interesting that you have described this character as the character that always puts, you know, one foot in front of the other, that always moves forward. Because over the past few years of your life, um, you've gone through these incredible, just tremendous struggles personally and with your health. Yes. Um, uh, You were diagnosed with uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, if I remember correctly. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and had to do some aggressive cancer treatments yes, for I that. Um, your older brother committed suicide. Yes. Um, younger. Younger brother, excuse me. It's all right. Um, My older brother's going, wait, I'm dead? <laughs> <laughs> I, how long have I been dead? <laughs> also, why am I listening to this show? <laughs> this, this young America's in, in, in heaven or hell? Jeez. <laughs> um, 
did go, did having those incredible difficulties change your perspective on what you wanted to do with yourself creatively? Was that, for example, part of the impetus of not just uh, of wanting to find a way out of just being the gay guy? Well, no, because that was 10 years ago that I came out. I, I wrote this originally as a screenplay, and I peddled it for years to different studios, and then the, everybody said, we love it. It's incredibly original. We'll never make it. So, um, and then Flying I, mastodons are expensive to put on screen. They really are. Right. Telepathic, too. And, and then I just went... After, I would keep returning to it and going, I love this story. I have to get this story out. It's the, the big story that I want. My, I want to tell this. It's my Lord of the Rings. I want to tell this huge story. And I had to do it. And then it was a couple of, when I got diagnosed with cancer, it was just before I got diagnosed with cancer. It was about three years ago. I took it around. I thought, oh, it would make an amazing graphic novel. They'll never make my movie. So I want to get it. I was going to turn it into a novel. And then I thought, a graphic novel. So I pitched it to many companies, and they all loved it. But Frozen Beach is the company I went with because I, I, I enjoy – I like the guy, Stefan Nielsen, who um, is the president. And he took me to Comic-Con. So you dance with the one that brung you. And um, so I, I, we started we, – we did this. And then just as we were starting to adapt it, um, I got sick. And um, everything changed. But the funny thing is, I worked on that book all through my illness. And it was one of the... The funny, interesting thing is when I, I was diagnosed in April 2009. So it's almost two years. I, I'm cured, by the way. And uh, I would. there's no question that was the worst year of my life. Um, yet at the same time, I that year that I was going through chemotherapy and radiation and fighting for my life was also the year that I put out The Hollow Planet and The Kids in the Hall had a comeback series. And I, it's hard for me to believe that a year can be the worst year of your life, but also have elements in it that are wonderful. And um, my illness truly, in you know, it was hard. There was certainly, there came a time when I couldn't work on it. It was all done online, too. Like, all the collaborators, we all worked online. And there came a time when I couldn't do it. But I kept coming back to it. But it was always something that kept me going because I would go, like, I know it seems like I've got nothing in my life, but I've got the hollow planet. And, and then I started to look at the story of the hollow planet. And I realized that there were things in it that happened to Danny that like Danny's life systematically is destroyed. Everything that he loves is taken away from him. And I realized that it was my own life, that I somehow I'd been subconsciously writing about my own life that hadn't even happened yet. And um, I don't know how that is. I can't really explain creativity. Sometimes I think there's magic. And um, ironically, the book is about magic. And it was the most profound. And then what I would say to myself was, when I was really de in despair, I would say, you know, like, Danny wouldn't give up. And Danny loses everything, even his mustache, for God's sake. And he comes back stronger than ever. So I would say to myself, well, you're going to be just like Danny. You will come back. They will take you to the edge of death. 
and then I will come back stronger than ever. And so that gave me enormous um, – and also when I was making the, the Kids in the Hole series, I, the same thing. I would, there was a character in the show that I really identified with that was marked for death but doesn't, but cheats it. So I, those were the two people. His name was Krim. He's the native guy. And I would, ident- Krim was me and Danny was me. And I would hang on to those two guys and go like, I'm them. They will, they're, one's marked for death, but it doesn't die. And the other one loses everything but comes back stronger. That will be me. And I remember very clearly, it was about my third treatment when things were starting to really tumble my and because it's just horrible what they do to you i had lost all of my hair and suddenly the pictures started coming in online from my um artist kyle morton and they were me as danny with no body hair and I, it just was profound to me. I, I mean, it made me cry I, I remember looking at them and weeping because i would i looked at those pictures and it's me looking back at me. And I wrote that 10 years before. And, for, and I would look and go, how did I know? And it, it was, that was when I said to, to Stefan, I, and I also was getting really serious. I said, I can't really work right now. It's just freaking, it's freaking me out to see my face that he, he drawn me the way I really was, the way I was looking at that time. I don't know, like, sometimes I, I believe that uh, this book, this might seem crazy, but this book had to come out. Um, this whole story had to come out. And I feel like, I, I know it's, it's almost like I knew what was going to happen to me and that I was somehow preparing the way so that when it did happen to me, I would have something to hold on to. It's like I built an airbag 10 years before airbags were invented, and then 10 years later I had the accident. (laughs) But I'd forgotten to put the airbag in. The Kids in the Hall had this uh, really tempestuous history. It was a group that was, from what I can tell, even at its peak, sort of founded on conflict. (laughs) Forged in conflict, you might say. And... um, uh, was very decidedly broken up to the point where you weren't really speaking with each other for five or six years. That's right. Um, but that is all that broken upness is now in the past. I mean, you yes. did some tours in the two thousands and then this series. mini series that ran on IFC here in the States. And, um, I wonder what role being part of this group of artists that you've been in, you know, on and off now for more than 20, 25 years or so. It'll be soon 25 years. Um, what role that has in your life now as a 51-year-old wow. Wow. man? It's still a huge part of my life. I mean, I yesterday I was going to, I didn't, uh, Dave did stand up last night. I couldn't go, but I was going to go see him. Uh, I will see Dave this week. We're going to be doing some gigs together. I'll go and see Bruce um, next week. Um, we're very tight. We're brothers. And we're in it for life. And uh, it's it's the only real, it's the only relationship that I've ever really made work. Like, in a strange way, I'm married to four straight men. And um, I, nothing can break us apart now. It's like, 
we, we did everything in our power to destroy it, and we couldn't. So we just finally decided, ah, let's just let it live. So it's still, you know, like, and I, I mean, I would love us to do another tour. I'd love us to do another series. You know, and we'll see what happens. There has to be more interest, I think, for that to happen. Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the San Diego America. Thank you very much, Jesse. Scott Thompson is a founding member of The Kids in the Hall. His new graphic novel is called Danny Husk in The Hollow Planet. He's also the host of the uh, very funny podcast, Scott Free, which you can find, uh, all of which, in fact, you can find at his website, newscotland.com. Scotland has two T's. Let's be clear. Yes. Hey, gang, it's me, Jesse. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Sound of Young America. If you are riding the bus or whatever, do not forget, right now or at your earliest convenience, to visit MaximumFun.org slash donate to support our show. And hey, while you're at it, take credit on Twitter or on our message board. You can use the hashtag MaxFunDrive. Fire up that browser, MaximumFun.org slash donate. Take care of business. Let's go. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com.